again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30. Storyboard 30 is the interview program taken right out of the pages of the monthly print journal, Storyboard Memphis, where we bring Memphis personalities and shapers right here into the WYPL studios for 30 minutes of in-depth conversation to hear about their passions, their initiatives, or to talk a little bit about what makes Memphis, Memphis. As always, you are hearing our friend Jeff Hewlett on acoustic guitar. Jeff is a regular contributor to Storyboard Memphis and plays regularly with his friend Leah Keys in their duo, Leah and Me. And I am Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis, your host for the next half hour of Storyboard 30. My guest today is a, a name that many of you are familiar with. He is a journalist and a writer, Chris Davis of the Memphis Flyer. So, Chris, I, um, I brought you in. One, I just wanted to have a chat. Two, though, I wanted, I wanted to talk about the piece that you wrote that you spent, what, three or four months on at least... Well, that's. Uh, um, I spent that amount of time actually prepping up for what's kind of a larger project that that's a part of. Okay. Because there's going to be several other media stories that are that are um, dribbling out over the next few months. Okay, so, gotcha. Yeah. So the so the first big one to be published then is is this one. It was it's called Going to Pieces, and it was published in uh, the middle of March, and it reads. I think a, it's a little bit of a combination of a treatise. And a manifesto. <laughs> I, I kind of think of it when I was... Well, I tried to really... step away from manifesto and get a lot of uh, opinion and, and thought, you know, a lot of what I think we need to do out of it. Yeah. And just let a lot of, you know, numbers and history and... You know, another thing I wanted to do is I wanted to get a lot of the triggering language that we have when we start talking about newspapers and yeah. media generally. There's a lot of emotional loading in that language. People have feelings and sort of resort to the dismal language of economics and just reframe the way we talk about what's happening with newspapers right yeah. now in a way that's maybe a little more honest and removed from um, the conversations that uh, make people want to square off and argue. Yeah, I like that emotional loading that we come pre- programmed with if you will from yeah. thinking about the paper the the article uh was accompanied by a, a cartoon that was drawn by greg cravens, greg cravens yeah. yeah and the the cartoon that was on the cover of the flyer for that issue is terrific because it shows shows this man eating breakfast he's got his smartphone in his hand he's got a cup of coffee and cereal in front of him he's got his laptop he's got a copy of the flyer on the table He's got the television on. He's got his Amazon uh, Alexa playing, and he's got the commercial peel on the floor. And I think I, when I looked at that, I went, "That's all of us." I mean, we're kind of grabbing it. It's almost like grabbing at whatever we can get our hands on. It yeah. is, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that you you brought up Greg's cartoon, and I want you to know that that was. That image was actually hard arrived at because sometimes these stories, you know, when you, you put together these packages, they have to be illustrated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the illustration is also sort of a billboard for your product because it's, you know, in the boxes on the streets. It has to be something that, you know, makes people want to pick it up. Mm -hmm. and, and so you're doing stories about the economics of newspaper journalism. The things you can use to illustrate that aren't really they're, – they're not gripping. And so uh, Bruce Van Weingarten, my editor, and I, we sat across the table and we were just – going through the imagery from what's been happening with newspapers and, and print journalism. And it's like, you know, he'd say, well, what, if you want this information, you have to go here. If you want this. And, 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 and right. finally, through this kind of just back and forth, we came up with going to pieces. Uh -huh. And and I thought Greg really delivered in being able to present something that 
I encourage you to read the piece, but I think it says a whole lot. And I think there's actually a lot of emotional loading in that, too, because we've all experienced that that situation of sometimes maybe having so much news opportunity, it's overwhelming. It's like being in the supermarket aisle in front of all the cereal. You know, how do you pick? How do you pick and how do you know which one is going to be the healthiest? How do you know which one are your kids going to like? You know, I mean, yeah, you're right. That's a good analogy. I want to read one of these paragraphs uh, because it really speaks to, and I really want to get, get into this, it really speaks to our current landscape and also what I think is, is become a real issue here. Okay. I mean, a real problem. So uh, the, the about uh, maybe about a third of the way in, into the piece, uh, and I'll paraphrase it as much as I can, but it says, if it disappears, and it being the commercial appeal and the Tennessean, really, if you look at this, these, the um, Allen Global Capital, if they, if they were to purchase Gannett. But the, the paragraph basically reads, if the commercial appeal disappears, what then? Is the not-for-profit Deadly Memphian position to replace the, the city's historic paper of record, which is really important, What's the role played by community newsletters or social media? What about other news lifestyle publications like the Memphis Flyer, Storyboard Memphis, Memphis Business Journal, Memphis Parent, so on and so on, the best of times? What about smaller digital-only newsrooms? What about high ground news, the Justitorium MLK 50? Essentially, and it speaks exactly to that cartoon, Yeah, is the clutter, the, the noise, the propaganda, the, you know— that is the, like you said here in the article, that is the big question. So let's start by talking about what the dangers are in not having, let's, let's say, you know, worst, you know, worst case scenario, Gannett sells and commercial appeals disbanded. I think that that's, <clears throat> that's pretty straightforward. There's a, there's a really good author named uh, James Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, you quoted him, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a distinguished faculty at uh, Stanford, mm-hmm. uh, working in journalism. You know, right at the, uh, you know, right where it, the, 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 he looks at it from an economic point of view. He's actually the guy who I sort of went to and was like, okay, this is how we can talk about this and maybe reset how we talk about newspapers. And I think if he, if you were asking him this question, I'm, I'm actually asking myself how he would answer it, is that he might sort of say, well, whether you are a person committing fraud or a person investigating fraud, you're both making a similar gamble mm-hmm. and they're opposite sides of the coin. And I, I'm not saying, you know, that fraud is a thing we need to be yeah. uh, concerned with necessarily. I'm just using this as an example. Yeah. So they're gambling that there's not a lot of oversight and they aren't going to be caught. And we're gambling that that people are going to pay attention and the story is going to move a lot of issues that's going to make us interesting, hopefully, to to subscribers or readers and advertisers and and so on and so forth. Right. So I think that when you get a situation where you lose a major player in the information business and you know, it's really easy to look at the botched headlines that are the result of the uh, out-of-town editing and to, yeah. you know, to laugh at all of that stuff. And it's funny. 
when you misspell ignorance yeah. in large type on uh, it's just it's funny and it's okay to laugh but you got to understand that that undermines a lot of really good work that not just the commercial appeal but even Gannett the corporate organization that we sort of want to make one of the villains of right. the piece yeah. the other thing that's frustrating about this story is there aren't really good guys there really just aren't in this kind of corporate game of thrones but so Gannett has the money and is able to invest to do things to create algorithms that can, you know, identify all of this uh, copy and paste legislation, like mm-hmm. the stuff that's been coming down from the Koch brothers or whatever. You know, all these special interests that craft legislation, it shows up in state houses across the country. Right, right. Gannett has the ability to do this sort of thing, whereas a lot of smaller independent organizations can't. This is a huge breakthrough work and an example, I think, of of one of the things I get at in the piece um, by way of James Hamilton in our interview Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the future of uh, role of AI and technology in helping with journalism and reporting. Mm -hmm. It's not going to replace us. Yeah. It's just going to help us a whole lot in a lot of ways if we're able to use it right. If we're able to use it right. If we're able to use it right, right? So you've got – we're laughing, and that devalues the way I think people think about the newspaper. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the value of a newspaper has been that it had this social – value. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd see your buddy, did you see such and such in the newspaper today? Did you see such and such in the newspaper today? And I shouldn't clap my hands that close to the <laughs> microphone. I'm sorry. I, I get very animated. I'm like a preacher. Hey, I did it again. Uh, I, that's the thing I won't do. Um, now I've completely, I've completely lost. The social aspect. Did, yeah. you, did you read this story? And yeah. Well, you know, the, a thing that we know that we're able to know is that what was valuable about newspapers is the bundle. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't, you know, you're able to sell your value by saying we do all of this investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. But really the thing that's most, you know, interesting to to advertisers and to readers and stuff, it's usually things about about food or or fashion or something that gives them some kind of value or this other thing. And then the big stories break. You don't necessarily have to read them to be informed because everybody's talking about them. Right. And when the social value is, you know, um, a lot of it's anchored in in credibility. And you have all of these, like, silly, goofy mistakes that just are continuing to chip away at the credibility at a time when fewer and fewer people read. The good of investigative journalism is – you know, only as good as the reputation and um, and reach mm-hmm. of the people who are trying to to distribute that information. Yeah, it, am I rambling, or is this making? Is oh this, no, is this no, logical? This, no. Of course it is. Okay. Yeah. In taking a step back, though, for a moment, you know, you talked about like the very beginning, the uh, emotional loading about it, and I think that that speaks to the a lot of people are missing the the nostalgia factor the, right. the the emotional factor the the routine you know get up in the morning go outside grab, sure. you know you know bring the paper and grab your coffee and read the paper and that's that's like you said about the bundling and once upon a time everybody did it right and maybe they just turned straight to the comics but in turning to the comics they went past the headline about you know the aquifer went past the headline but they, about the, but, they, but saw, they saw it right they saw it right yeah. right that's the thing that i think when we look at social media, when we look at 
uh, what we have on our on our devices, you miss the other pieces. You miss it's it's like I, I sometimes think of the paper, the front page of a paper as a dashboard. I can see everything going on on the front page. I can dig in if I want. I can go to page seven, you know, and dig into the story if I want to. But at least in the front page, I got the dashboard. I got like I got a an idea of yeah. everything going on for that day or that week or whatever. And yeah, and that's what's 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 we're missing. But there's a deeper, darker side to which is what you're getting to. I, I don't know if that was like actually answering the question that you asked, which is you know what what's missing when it goes away. Mm-hmm. And I think there are all of these other organizations that are very well positioned to deliver, and in some cases deliver very well certain pieces of that right. bundle. Yeah. But without that thing that everybody reads, without that thing that everybody touches, it doesn't have that kind of social heft that yeah. it used to. Right. Um, it doesn't have the kind of reach. It doesn't have the weight. It doesn't have the gravity. And 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 I think that that's um, difficult. And I think it's hard for any of us, even something is, you know, a startup that started up as strong as the Daily Memphian. Yeah. It came from no, well, it did come from nowhere. You know, it obviously has a precedent in the Daily News and all of that. But the commercial appeal has such brand recognition and in some ways, a very smart move that they went and took a lot of the name brand reporters. Yeah, that was kind of, I mean, to, it, it was really a coup in a, in a sense. Well, all of a sudden, yeah, because yeah. it's, but it's a, it's a thing that, you know, now, particularly in this fractured world yeah. that all media sort of depends on is like, you also look to brand name journalists because people will go with what's familiar. Oh, I know I, you know, it might not even be, I love so-and-so. I, I know I always hate so-and-so and love the opposite, you know, think the opposite of what he, right. you know, there are just lots of reasons that familiarity and brand recognition are important in this very fractured market where, right. you know, there's no real good recreation of the bundle other than the bundle. In case you're just joining us, this is Mark Fleischer, host of Storyboard 30. We are sitting and talking with uh, Chris Davis of the Memphis Flyer. This is FM 89.3 WIPL. Speaking of the bundle, it's like, you know, now we, we use the term viral. Something yeah. has gone viral, whether it be a dog video <laughs> or, or something else that goes viral. We didn't have to have that kind of frenzy because it was all there on the front page in the bundle. It was all there. The front page headline, whether it be splashy or not, but the front page headline told you that this is the most important thing you're going to read today. This is the story for the day. Pay attention to this one. Yeah. You know, and something has to go viral before someone will really pay attention to it. I, I don't remember when it was that Time Magazine put the reflective image of the computer on its cover and named you the man of the year because, you know, oh, bloggers yeah. and citizen that. journalists were stepping in and reshaping a lot of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that was in response to the fact that sometimes those headlines that you're describing really were um, – there needed to be corrections. Mm-hmm. And – you know, that that I hate to use the language of the enemy, but that there is some elitism that you get in these bubbles and in these bubbles, you're not always connecting with your readers. And yeah. I think that there is a unbelievable amount of evidence that, that a lot of what's gone wrong in 
particularly in print media, is a result of um, assuming that our readers are like us or assuming we know who our readers are or yeah. what they want. Or even worse, a lot of times tailoring your product specifically for people who don't read it. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've right. got to get all these people who don't read it. So you do these things that, that for whatever reason you believe are the things that people who don't read it want. Right. It upsets the people who've been loyal to you forever, and, it, and it's, it's not shown a great deal of um, – particularly with you know pivots to digital and stuff like that – Audiences just haven't been recreated online. and Right, right. Um, I think if we shift gears for a second, because you get into this in, in the article as well, and a, a lot of the interviews, because you, you uh, posted, you know, the, the details of the, the interviews that, of, of the various folks you interviewed. Name, name some of the people real quickly you interviewed. I named uh, Jacynthia Jones. I named yeah. Eric Barnes. Yeah. She, she's with Chalkbeat. Uh, I talked to Eric Barnes. I talked to James Hamilton. Oh, my gosh. I spoke to Wendy Thomas Wendy at Thomas. MLK50. I talked to you. Mm. Uh, you talked to spoke to folks Karanja. at, yeah, Karanja at the, uh, at the Tri-State Defender. Yeah. Um, I tried to speak to you know, people who were involved in different kinds of print media. Some, you know, sometimes print gets confusing because some of those are digital only. Yeah. But, but we'll say, you know, mostly word or text-based media, even though we do use pictures and video and all those other things now, right. too. Right. But um, one of the things that's brought up often uh, is kind of the elephant in the room or the grill in the room, whatever you want to say, is Facebook. Facebook, Google Ads, which is taking away some of our traditional revenue streams, which is making it more difficult for print and for other traditional news sources to to be sustained. I think that that's sort of an an easy conversation. This this has been an ongoing circumstance. Facebook isn't new. Twitter is not new. None of these things are new now. And newspapers got themselves sort of in a crack by maintaining outsized profit margins not really addressing um, readership bleed um, in good ways for a long time to mm-hmm. maintain these margins. And then, then you got into these circumstances where Detroit crashes and there's not, you know, there's not ad, uh, automobile advertising anymore. So now you've got a real advertising crisis. You have mm-hmm. um, the housing market, you know, drops and the whole economy crashes and nobody has money to advertise. And that's uh-huh. a problem. Yeah. And then you have Craigslist. Right, I keep you know, you have, I always, you have, I always forget about Craigslist. No, like, like because, in, yeah. two, in 2008, in 2008, like from I'll forget the dates exactly, but we've lost roughly half of our newsroom journalists um, since you know 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that period, like half the newsroom journalists just you know just gone. The other story that's there is that you had. Um, advertising just just bottomed out and it was a a perfect storm of all of these corporate owners who were very leveraged from buying lots and lots and lots of products maintaining these kind of artificially large uh, profit margins always cutting newsroom staff cutting newsroom staff you know cutting the the people who were making your content yeah and making your content valuable Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you know, there goes automobile advertising. There goes real estate advertising. There goes, you know, people aren't spending money. So there goes a lot of services advertising, a lot of entertainment advertising. And then Craigslist comes along and, and just guts classified advertising. Yeah. There was this massive loss of revenue. And this massive loss of revenue, you know, it's it, it triggered a really weird um, decision. 
Mm-hmm. That's when that's when newspapers said, you know, we've got to uh, deal with this. So they ended rural home delivery. I think here that started like in 2008. I'm, I, I've just gone off topic. No, no. Are, are we good? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm, I'm like giving you the William Faulkner interview, and this is just completely stream of, <laughs> oh, no, stream no. of consciousness. No. But so in, in, in like 2008, and gosh, I don't know why I have this memory. I think it's like in March. It's like in the spring of 2008, they start to really quietly start scaling back um, delivery in, into Mississippi, into Arkansas, into rural Tennessee. And the... Um, one of the reasons was that the people who de- – or the reasons given at the time is that the people who were delivering the newspapers, you know, they were responsible for um, providing their own cars. They were responsible right. for all of the maintenance on their own cars, and they were trying to get gas subsidies. And, you know, this is post-Katrina. Gas prices are, are way, way up. Yeah. Um, I, I went to some of these like delivery stations where people would assemble the paper early in the morning, and you know families would show up. They bring their kids; they'd all be putting together, you know, the papers to stuff and, and deliver. Well, it was uh, I think with gas subsidies, they may have said it was going to cost an additional seventy five thousand dollars or something. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they they choose to end this rural home delivery, and that like knocks out like ten thousand readers, yeah, ten thousand subscribers. And I think this decision was made in a moment of desperation. It was happening all over the country. Right. All over the country, newspapers were ending their rural uh, home deliveries. That, that's part of the, you know, part of the myth, like, oh, nobody reads papers anymore. Well, part of it's because the papers just said, we're not going to come to you anymore. And, yeah. and this readership was not replicated in digital subscription. And, and not only not replicated, but in areas where there wasn't and still isn't in some cases broadband. Or even, you know, sporadic internet service. Gosh, I know a few people who have uh, their parents live in some rural areas. But you would think it's a not a wealthy rural area in some of the some of these cases, but rural areas where you would you would assume that yeah. they would have pretty decent internet service, and they don't. Once upon a time, I could give you some of the actual details about the the regulatory laws, and I, I will lie to you if I try and do it now. <laughs> but there was a big difference in, like, when um, telephone was the emerging technology and we were building out our telephone infrastructure yeah. and when telecom became the emergent technology and we started building out our fiber infrastructure. So there's, like, a lot of redundancy in some densely populated areas, and there's just a lot of, you know, rural spaces where it's it's a lot thinner. And so it's a very expensive proposition to get – to get fiber and to run all this fiber and to make, you know, to make the the stuff happen. Yeah. And the big companies didn't feel the need to build it out into places where there wasn't going to be a lot of profit. Yeah. So maybe a little little small town utility built out some fiber. If the town's viable, maybe they can maintain it. My parents, they uh, their utility just announced recently that they were ending their uh, internet and uh, cable services. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And that's in Middle Tennessee, so in rural Middle Tennessee. So I guess people can get satellite hookups and and they've got their phones. That no that that's interesting. You know, I I'm 7 months, 8 months now into my print paper. And I think about this stuff all the yeah. time. I'm always thinking about cuz every now and then I'll get some feedback from someone and and I'll also every now and then get a surprise sure. from someone who's picked up the paper and said this was the only place I found this story. I didn't know this was happening unless, besides your paper. Right. Oh, wow. Where are you? You know, and, and it's actually somewhere right in the middle of Memphis, but they don't have access to anything. 
But we have, yeah. you yeah. know, we have lots of communities that also have very low digital and you know, very low broadband and, and Wi-Fi yeah, right. penetration. Yeah, um, impoverished communities, you know, and but but sometimes it's not even about wealth. Although it mostly is, I guess, I guess it is. I'm sorry, it's wrong to say that, but it's just it's just in the way again the way infrastructure is built out. Yeah. You know, again, yeah. an example of the commercial appeal sometimes doing you know really good work right now that goes under recognized because it's more interesting to to go oh, look with that look at that look at that funny mistake. Yeah, is I think you know they did a thing about how the north side of Memphis experiences considerably more blackouts than other parts because the you know, it's the, it's the same way with, you know, yeah. just just because, you know, whatever provider is advertising their blazing light speed in your community doesn't mean it's actually built out to where you live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And if it is, it doesn't mean that it fits your budget. Right, right. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, you look at the commercial appeal, for example, and you're right. They, they, they are doing some – they're doing some terrific work. Can, can, can I stop for just a second to, yeah. to like – to hit on something basic that I know that we've talked about before mm-hmm. and maybe I've written about it a little bit before, but it's just a silly thing. I don't know that people always think about, but when we talk about information justice, mm-hmm. it's about people need certain, there's certain information that people need, yeah. but it's just not about whether or not it's available. It's also about whether or not they can access it. And it's not just about whether or not they can access it. It's about what are the barriers between them and access? What are the obstacles? Yeah. yeah. And so like with a newspaper, once upon a time, if you had enough money for a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. you could choose between a cup of coffee or a newspaper, or maybe you didn't have to choose. You could go down to the Waffle Hut and some, and you could pay for your cup of coffee and somebody had left a newspaper yeah, behind. Right. We don't do that. You know, sometimes I think pass along value can be overrated or overstated, but we don't do that with our devices. You don't leave your iPad uh, open on the, right. on the counter of a, of a thing without the, um, the, the pass along factors yeah, without this, without this, um, this tangibility, you know, I, I think there's just a lot of assumption about who is able to to, to access news. So, yeah. so you used to have a choice. You get a paper or you get a cup of coffee. But now if you want that same piece of news, you have to, A, have a device, mm-hmm. you know, right, a computer, right. an iPad, a phone. You also have to have a, a subscription to a, a, some kind of broadband service or Wi-Fi service. Yeah. Then maybe on top of that, you have to have a subscription to the newspaper or the magazine or whatnot. So it's not – the idea is we think this – we live in this magical digital future where everything just appears on our watch or in our glasses or on our – Whatever and and maybe that's true if you're in a position where you can you know overcome all of those various obstacles rather than just walking down to the corner with fifty cents. Yeah, well, especially when you know we're dealing with communities now that they they can't afford the the monthly rates for a phone or the phone itself, and they might also on top of that be in an area where they're not getting that kind of broadband broadband access. Right. Guess what? It goes back to print. It's no. the only it's yeah. the only way it's, that they they they're having they get access to any news. It's a goofy thing, you know. Yeah. It, it's like you know why is there so much music piracy? Why is there all you know you know <clears throat> why don't people want to pay for music? Well, a lot of their disposable income that they would have gone taken down to the corner store now actually just goes to you know pay to get the thing that gives them access to the. 
thing. It's it's all, as, as I try and point out over and over again in the story, in ways that are way less boring than it sounds when you say it out loud. But, you know, economies determine content. And, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. just always true. And it's always true across the board. We, we can scream and pretend we're above all that, but, but we ain't. No, we're not, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that note, we are out of time. Oh. I think we should do this again. Sure. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like we were just getting warmed up. Exactly. I had yeah. all kinds of numbers I only half knew. I was just getting ready to throw on the table. Well, let's, let's, let's do this again. Chris Davis of The Flyer. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for coming. Um, and thank you, Vance Durbin, once again. Uh, and to WYPL Program Manager Tommy Warren, to WYPL and to the Memphis Public Libraries for their support, uh, to you listeners and supporters of the library and FM 89.3. Uh, again, go on to memphisflyer.com, pull up Chris Davis's uh, article from uh, March 14th. It is very much worth the read. And um, hope you join us next time on Storyboard 30 for more conversation with those Memphis personalities and shapers who make our lives here in the Bluff City just a little bit better. Memphis, make it a great week. Mm-hmm.